So what I have to share with y'all this morning is going to be a bit different than normal. It's going to be two kind of different thoughts that are connected by a, a thread that hopefully ties things together so somewhat. And if not, we'll just be along for the ride. Um, so the, and to start with, oh, and I had a busier week than normal, so this isn't as internalized as I would like, so I prefer to speak to y'all, but I might be having to look down at my notes here a bit more th than normal, so I apologize for that. Um, so the, the first thing I'd like to mention briefly here is that this Sunday in February is observed sometimes as Sanctity of Life Sunday. It is a liturgical novelty, which means Father James is not a fan of it, perhaps. It's just under 40 years old. Not enough to be older than him, as youthful as he looks. But I want to make a quick comment on that to start here, because I think it can be helpful f for us, despite its novelty. When we read the gospel passage this morning, it tells us how Jesus' followers had to leave things behind in order to follow him. When we are faced with the call of Jesus, we may not have to leave behind fishing nets, but we often must surrender our personal comforts and preferences and trust that the way of Jesus is best. Sanctity of Life Sunday reminds us that we may have to leave things behind in order to follow Christ and the Christian teaching of the Imago Dei. Christianity holds that every human is made in the image of God. Unlike any other creature, human beings alone bear a special likeness to God, and God further dignified humanity by taking on flesh and living as one of us. Therefore, every person, no matter their race or creed or gender or how rich or poor they are, has inestimable worth and dignity in the eyes of God. And this notion that no individual is outside the bounds of humanity and is worthy of dignity challenged Roman culture in the early days of the church. It didn't fit in the categories people were used to. Christians rescued unwanted babies that were abandoned to die, for they too were made in the image of God. Christians stayed in the city in times of plague, risking their own lives to care for those who were sick, for they too were made in the image of God. Christians opposed the gladiatorial games, which prioritized fleeting, gruesome entertainment over the lives of prisoners and non-citizens, for they too were made in the image of God. And in the same way, if we follow Christ today and take seriously this idea that every human being is made in the image of God, we will be challenged as we seek to follow him. Traditionally, this day has invited us to consider how we treat unborn children and mothers grappling with pregnancy that they don't know if they can support because they also are made in the image of God. But if we take this idea of the Imago Dei and the sanctity of life, it goes far beyond just that. The Imago Dei challenges how we treat immigrants seeking safety and a better life for they too are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei challenges how we treat those with chronic conditions who are told their lives are not worth living, for they too are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei challenges how we treat those in prison who might be used just for profit, for they too are made in the image of God. 
The Imago Dei challenges how we talk about those with whom we disagree politically, for they too are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei challenges how you treat that person at work or school who just really annoys you. Because as I once saw carved into the picnic table of a Christian summer camp, God loves everyone, even Steve. (laughs) For even Steve or Karen or whoever that may be, they also are made in the image of God. Sanctity of Life Sunday reminds us that in the human race there is no them and there is no other. And it challenges us to order not only our public lives but our personal lives to reflect that reality. Now I want you to listen to what I am not saying. I am not saying there is one Christian political party. Taking the Imago Dei seriously will at times pose serious challenges to traditional Republican or Democratic positions. And I'm not saying there's one Christian policy on every issue. Christians may have common convictions and common desired ends, but disagree in good faith on the best way to realize those outcomes. What I am saying is that if we take the Imago Dei seriously, it will pose serious questions to every one of us in terms of how we treat those around us. So instead of using this day or this idea to make Christ be a cudgel to use against those with whom we might naturally disagree with, let's take this opportunity to invite God, using the language of Psalm 139, to search our hearts and see what are the ways in which we are taking seriously the Imago Dei and what are the ways in which we might need to be challenged. So that's the first thought. And now that uh, people are perhaps, I don't know, a little bit uncomfortable, I want to stick with the idea of Psalm 139. It's famous for what it talks about starting around verses 12, where it says, For you made my innermost parts. You knit me together in my mother's mother's womb. I will give you thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's the kind of feel-good stuff that gets put on coffee mugs, journal covers, and motivational posters. And it's an anthem for self-esteem and self-acceptance. And it is a good and beautiful thing, and I am for that idea. It's biblical. It's true. But Psalm 139 is about so much more than just how we're beautifully and wonderfully made. First off, when we read the Bible, we are never the main character. God is. So while the Bible does have a lot to say about who we are as human beings, it always gets there in relationship to what it says about who God is. The Imago Dei starts with who God is, and then it gets to us by how we are made in his likeness. So before we get to a lofty, beautiful verse about how wonderfully we're made, we have to see what it says about God. Now this psalm is the classic text in the Bible for how God is omniscient and omnipresent, the fancy theological words that say God knows everything and is everywhere. There is nothing that God does not know. As we pray at the beginning of each service, um, he, that from him no secrets are hid. And there is no place where God is not. And as we consider that, 
We might not like what we see, at least not at first. It might not be the kind of thing that we would want to paste on the cover of a journal. So I want us to consider this idea of God's omniscience and omnipresence and consider how it might seem like a problem, how what is the problem with the problem that comes up, and what is the promise of God's omniscience and omnipresence. So first, the problem. We like privacy because we like safety. Knowledge about us can be used against us. That's why governments invest billions of dollars in intelligence and counterintelligence. That's why coaches try and hide their play calls. That's why you don't tell your prospective employer what salary you actually want during negotiations over pay. That's why you don't tell everyone your deepest, darkest secrets, because that information can be used against you. The more known we are, the more vulnerable we are. And so when we read the first six verses of the psalm, and we see a God who knows everything we do and everything we think, we may feel threatened. It may seem less comforting and more creepy. I mean, think about your closest friend, the person who you know and trust most of anyone in the world. Would you want them to know every single thought that pops into your head? Or even half the thoughts that pop into your head? Probably not even 10%, because it's scary. And yet God knows all of that. And so that can seem threatening because it can be used against us. So maybe we're like, okay, God knows everything, but maybe I can run away. I can get to a place where he can't see me, where I can't be found out. And that's what the psalm goes to in verses 7 through 12. They show how that's a fool's errand. The psalmist says that if I ascend to heaven or make my bed in Sheol, which is like a poetic way of saying no matter how high or low I go, God is still there. So like, okay, I can't go high, I can't go low. How about laterally? So next he says, if I go on the wings of the dawn, which is like saying all the way to the east, or to the uttermost parts of the sea, and Israel was, I'm sorry, for, for you it's east, though technically that way is actually east. Um, or if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, which Israel was bounded on the west by the Mediterranean. So if you go all the way to the west, God is still there. It's like, okay, so I can't escape God, but maybe I can hide. So the psalmist tries cloaking himself in darkness, but it turns out God is pretty good at hide and seek, so that that doesn't work either. So despite our best attempts, we can never run away from God or his presence. He knows everything and is present everywhere. Our secrets are not safe. And so perhaps we also feel unsafe in the face of his presence and the face of the reality of an omniscient and omnipresent God. And this is exactly the conclusion that some thinkers have come to. Christopher Hitchens was one of the prominent new atheists in the first decade of the century. And though I don't agree with the ends to which he used them, I really admired his writing. He was a beautiful writer, and he had a really sharp wit. And while he was alive, during a TV interview, 
he at one point voiced his misgivings about the kind of God we see depicted in Psalm 139. Here's what he said. He said, I think it would be rather awful if it was true. If there were a permanent total around the clock divine supervision and invigilation, that's a real word, I had to look it up, I, I didn't know, it means like constant watch, of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. In effect, he feels that the God we read about is a violation of his rights. An omnipresent, omniscient God is a threat to his, his liberty and a threat to the beautiful human dignity that we talked about at the very beginning. Precisely because of that, an atheist some hundred years before Christopher Hitchens said, to vindicate liberty, I must dethrone God. Have you ever felt this way, like even a little bit? Have you ever felt like, man, I don't want God to know these things about me. If only he could just stay out of my business. Does the omniscience or omnipresence of God ever feel like a threat? So that's the problem. It's unpleasant at best and unhuman at worst. But there's a problem with this problem. First, God does not bear out our worst fears. We dislike the idea of God knowing everything because of how that information might be used against us. But if we take a look at the Bible, is that the God we see? If we start at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit they weren't supposed to and feel guilty and ashamed, and so what do they do? They try to hide from God. And of course, there is no hiding from God. He's good at hide and seek. He finds them. And so what does he do when he finds them? How does he respond with fire and fury? No. His first words are that, that he says to them is in Genesis 3.9 it says, But the Lord called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? That's the language of relationship. Of trying to restore a relationship. Not a, the language of vindictive spite. We see this again in Jonah. Jonah knows you can't run away from God. He tried it himself. He did not want to go to Nineveh, so he fled from the presence of the Lord. He put verses 7 to 12 to test firsthand. He tried escaping to the uttermost parts of the sea, but he could not outrun God. So God confronts him with a storm. And some of you might be thinking, see, this is exactly what I'm scared of. God will use his knowledge and power to get me. He sent a storm after Jonah. But God only uses drastic measures like that when we persist in ignoring them. That's his last resort to try and get our attention. The stuff we read about in Amos, God only brings that kind of... Uh, judgment, that kind of upheaval after the nation of Israel for generations have been ignoring the prophets that had been telling them, hey, you are worshiping other gods. Hey, you are propagating deep injustices in your land. You should pay attention. And they didn't, so God got their attention. He only d does that if we persist in ignoring him. And so God used the storm not because he was vindictive, but to get Jonah's attention. 
In chapter four, Jonah is running away from God again, but this time figuratively in his heart, not literally. But this time he goes to God, he expresses his anger to God, and when he expresses his resistance to to God, God again responds not in the harsh way that some of us might expect. He comes with a loving question. He says, do you do well to be angry? He says, how is this working out? And in John 4, I think this is the best example of this. We see Jesus and the Samaritan woman. The woman was like Adam and Eve and Jonah clearly trying to hide. Why else would she go draw water from the well in the heat of the day when everyone else was trying to stay cool? It was the one time she could be assured that she wouldn't have to be seen by other people. Yet Jesus starts a conversation with her unbidden. And during their exchange, he shows that he knows the very information that has her hiding in the first place. But when Jesus brings it up, he doesn't bring the heat, he's gentle. So much so that afterwards, she runs back to town to the very people that she was trying to hide from. And this is what she says. She says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She says, the fact that he knew everything about me was what drew me to him, was what the deepest comfort that I saw. And I thought, because of that, he is the only one who could make everything right. She encountered God's all-knowing gaze firsthand and said it was a reason to run to God, not to run away from God. When we see how God uses his knowledge and presence, it does not bear out our worst fears. But the other problem with thinking God's omniscience and omnipresence is a problem is not only that it doesn't bear out our worst fears, it blocks us from our deepest desires. Our deepest desires require God to be all-knowing and all-present. We talked about how knowledge is power, so the more people know about us, the more vulnerable we are. But while privacy and secrecy may offer a degree of safety, they guarantee a life of loneliness. And we will do many unhealthy things just so we don't feel alone, just so we can be a little bit seen. If you're older, just think back to when you were a teenager and all the stupid things you did to get a girl or a boy to like you or to win the respect of your peers. You did lots of all sorts of dumb stuff just so someone could see you. And if you're older, you probably do, we we do the same stuff but in just more sophisticated ways. So much of our lives are subtle pleas of us saying, notice me. We may want privacy, but we crave presence. We want to be loved, and we cannot be loved without being known. And here is where we run into a problem. If we want someone else to know us, we at least have to know ourselves. Sure, we can get to know people indirectly by observing them, but at some point, you will have to tell someone you love, what's wrong? No, really, what's wrong? Because you can't figure it out just from watching them. They have to use their words and disclose the contents of their own hearts to you. 
and hopefully they will know themselves well enough to be able to respond. But the problem is we can never really know ourselves as well as we might want. For one, we don't know our own stories. One way to think about knowing someone is that they're the collection of everything that's ever happened to them. But none of us know the earliest events of our lives and even things in, in the recent past quickly dissolve into a fog of fallible impressions. So we can't even fully know ourselves. But here's a cl clearer example. You might say that's too academic. I don't expect to know myself in that way. Here's something that's more concrete. How many times in the past week have you looked at yourself and said, why did you do that? What were you thinking? Our own actions and motivations are often a mystery to even ourselves. We don't know ourselves as well as we think. And so we will always remain to some degree a mystery to ourselves, which means we will remain a mystery to others, which means there will always be part of our lives and our hearts that cannot be loved by the closest people in our lives. The people you love and who know you most cannot be present to every part of you, cannot meet that desire we all have to be known and loved. We need someone who fully knows us, who can be present to every part of our being. And here is where we see the promise of an all-knowing, all-present God. God knows us even when we don't have the courage or ability to let ourselves be known. He understands us even when we don't understand ourselves. We may be perplexed about why we keep on doing the wrong things, but God knows us, and because he knows us, he knows how to love us. He knows how to draw us to himself. He knows how to help us. Moreover, we can only be confident of God's love for us if he does fully know all of us. Theologian Ron Highfield who has a great book that talks about some of these things called God, Freedom, and Human Dignity. He says this, without confidence in God's omniscience, we could not be certain that God loves us. We could always doubt that God would love us, that we could always doubt that God would love us if God really knew what we were like. As you're getting to know someone, you might think, I don't want them to know this about me because if they did, they might reject me. In which case their care and love for you is always conditioned upon what they know about you. But God knows everything about us. He knows our deepest, darkest secrets and he still loves us. He does not run away. The most beautiful love song I know is called Duet by a band named Penny and Sparrow. And the key line in the chorus is this. It's, I've seen you and I've known you and I'm not going anywhere. And that ultimately can only be true of God. In life, when we discover unsavory, unpleasant details about other people, the natural reflex is to turn away. But God has nothing to learn and he knows everything about us. 
and he was not repulsed by us. In fact, he drew near, because it wasn't enough for him to know us. It wasn't enough for him to be present to us. He wanted us to know him, and he wanted us to know life in his presence as well. So he drew near, and God took on flesh and lived as you and I did. He became personally acquainted with the travails of being human and the dangers of entrusting himself to others. In fact, one of his closest friends who knew him best, and John at different points says Jesus would not entrust himself to the masses because he knew what was in their hearts. And yet, at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, you are my friends because I'm telling you exactly what I'm doing. You know what is going on. And one of those people who he entrusted himself to betrayed him. He took the knowledge of Jesus, of his habits, of where he goes, and used that to turn him in and have him be arrested and put to death. And as he was dying, a different one of Jesus' closest friends denied even being acquainted with Christ. God went through all these things, not just because he wanted us to know him. And because of that, we can see how God will never use the knowledge of us against us. It was used against him. He went through all of that so we could know him. And because he utterly knows us, it's easier, it's possible, it's still hard, but it's possible for us to acknowledge the ways in which we want to run from God because it's not a surprise to him. He already knows. That's why Augustine says when we don't confess our sins, we are not hiding from God, we are hiding God from ourselves. And so we can confidently ask God to search us and and know us and to see the ways in which we do not treat other people as image bearers of God because he already knows that and he will gently help us to know that about ourselves as well. Please pray with me. God, it's very scary to be known um, by other people and it might be scary to be known by you, uh, but we ask that you would, to each one of our hearts, God, show us the beauty and the promise of how you utterly know us and you will not leave us. Lord, that as far lost as we might find ourselves, there is nowhere that we can go that will be outside of your presence. Please teach us how to be comforted by that reality, Lord. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.